0: In chronicling how Steinbrenner's frenzied operating style gradually eroded the championship teams of 1977-78 to 78 into a sorry last-place 95 loss contingent by 1990, it was also our objective to provide a unique perspective on what it was like for the reporters covering this day-to-day circus. Greg Nettles said it all when, in describing life as a Yankee in the 70s and 80s, He related how, as a little boy, his ambition was to grow up to be a baseball player or join the circus. With the Yankees, he said, I got to do both. This book had its genesis on a Yankee team charter flight from Minnesota to Newark in 1987. We were having a few cocktails in the front of the plane where the writers and broadcasters sat when Tommy John— who always preferred sitting with the writers instead of his fellow players in the back of the plane, struck up a conversation about sports writing. "'You know, you guys have seen it all here,' John said. "'You ought to write a book about this team and how it operates like no other team. Of course, nobody would probably believe it.' In terms of how the game, as well as the manner in which it is covered, has changed, John had a point." For one thing, the beat writers today no longer travel with the team and, for the most part, stay in different hotels on the road, so their only interaction with the players is at the ballpark, on the field before games, and in the clubhouse. The notion of a chicken Stanley coming up to the press box before a game to tell us he was being put on the disabled list against his will, as he did that day in Anaheim in 1980, is in retrospect truly unbelievable. And, unlike with Steinbrenner, whose omnipresence transformed the writers into doctors on call, never knowing when he'd be creating a tempest while always looking to cultivate his personal real estate, the back pages of the New York tabloids, the owners are mostly invisible. Because we traveled with the team, stayed in the same hotels, drank in the same bars, It was a vastly different relationship between the players and the beat writers, and a lot of it had to do with Steinbrenner. As they watched helplessly as Steinbrenner fired managers and general managers and impulsively traded or released players with manic regularity, the Yankee players developed an us-versus-him mindset and were often eager to use the writers as a sounding board for their discontent. Ordinarily, this ongoing soap opera would seem to be a writer's dream. There used to be a saying among us, Don't ever worry about your early story on night games. The Yankees will always provide. But sometimes it got a little overwhelming. Like when Lou Pinella, having reached his breaking point over being platooned by Dick Hauser, confided his intention to retire after a June 1980 getaway night game in Oakland. Perplexing as it may have seemed to Pinella, our priority was not having a scoop, which we knew to be temporary frustration on his part, but rather not missing the team charter back to Newark. This is the story of how Steinbrenner, after spending millions on premier free agent's catfish hunter Reggie Jackson, and Goose Gossage, to restore the Yankees to world champion status in his first years of owning the team, got carried away with his success and continually purged the organization of the managers, general managers, scouts, player development people, and players who were so integral to that success. Indeed, it is the story of how Reggie, Catfish, and Goose eventually begot Ed Whitson, Steve Kemp, and Pascal Perez. It was a world that ceased to exist when Steinbrenner came back from his second suspension from baseball in 1993 and found that in his absence, the team had been gradually rebuilt by interim general manager Gene Michael.